the book of Revelation. Well, I guess I just run everybody off with the whole Revelation thing, huh? Maybe that was it. Tonight we're going to find ourselves in chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. I want to read the entire chapter. I'm, I would tell you we're going to do the entire chapter, but that's my goal. But I don't know how far we'll make it. All right, Revelation chapter 7, let's read that together. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the Four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders, and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, again, this beginning of this chapter is, is one of those chapters that, that that's going to create some struggles for a lot of people because, again, there's a lot of debate about how we should understand certain, certain things. I'm going to present it, obviously. I'll, I'll mention some of the, the differing views, but I'm going to present it from, from my perspective as well. You don't have to agree, as I've always tell you. I just want to make you think and consider it. Uh, from the onset, let me just say, because we, I just read a phrase, and every time I read that, especially in the book of Revelation, I'm immediately filled with all the things that, that I've, I've, 
I guess by instinct, I want to think because I've been told what that is. So we read the words tribulation and especially the words great tribulation. Um, I, I want to try, uh, or I want you to try, as you read through and study through Revelation, to, to, to almost empty yourselves of anything you've been told about that. Because here's the thing, when we ask the question, because that's the question, we know that everything we're talking about is, is indicative of, the, of those things that are going to take place during the time of tribulation. Uh, the debate's going to be, when is that? When is that? Is that now? Is that yet to come? Is it a, a defined period? Is it a symbolic period that, that could be, I mean, the, not symbolic period, but a, a symbolic time frame, seven years? Could that, is that literal seven? Is that, is that a number uh, that's symbolic, like many numbers in the, in the Revelation are, to, to, um, um, to present or to indicate the entirety or the whole or completeness? Uh, those are questions that, you know, you have to struggle with. But here's the thing. Uh, the difficult thing for us is, as it is in anything, as we grow and we hear and you sit under preachers or teachers and, or you read books and we take in this information, we don't necessarily uh, define these, these things or these, uh, the, the text as we see them based on the text. We often, we often bring things to the text. Now, we're all guilty of that, but we want to do that the least amount as possible. We want to allow the text to tell us what it's supposed to mean. And, and so... Let me back way up before we even dive into this. I know that if I ask you, do you believe in the inspiration of scriptures, you would say, yes, well, absolutely. Um, I, think, I think I know you well enough to know that. Um, and then I would couple that with the next statement, well, then do you believe in the sufficiency of scripture? And, and there you might go, well, what exactly do you mean? And what I mean when I say the sufficiency of scripture is not that the scripture answers every question we have. So, you know, I cannot turn to chapter and verse to teach me how to change the oil in my car. That's not what we mean, that the Bible has the answer for everything. Uh, But the Bible is sufficient for for everything that is necessary for us to live a faithful life uh, to God. Everything that's necessary to get us through this life in a God-glorifying way. But not only that, when I say I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, I believe that the Scripture is indeed enough that everything we need in, uh, to understand what God has left us in the Word is in the Word, okay? Now, that's not to diminish outside helps. I look at stuff. I see what other people think. But understanding that, you know, G.K. Bill, you don't have any idea who that is probably, but G.K. Bill is not, uh, while he's written an expansive, massive, wonderful commentary on the book of Revelation, uh, he did not do so under inspiration. He did so as a, uh, a fallen, very smart fallen human being. And so I can't just bank on it because he said it. Or let me get into the vein of where some of you might recognize. Uh, just because as smart and as wonderful and as good as his ministry is and has been for many years, just because David Jeremiah said it doesn't make it so. Okay? So the point is we want to allow Scripture to inform us. And sometimes it's difficult because of what we already know, right? Sometimes what we know or what we think we know clouds our reading of Scripture. That would most certainly be true of Revelation. Now, I'm not just saying that because uh, over the last, uh, your generation, you know, there's been kind of one main view of Revelation and it's not the one I hold. I'm not saying it because of that. It's true from any perspective uh, of the Bible, especially in the book of Revelation, that 
that we, we don't want to hold our views, number one, because somebody told it to us. Uh, we don't want to hold our views because that's what we held for so long, and now we're just fighting for that. We don't want to hold it because somebody we respect highly uh, holds that view. Uh, we want to hold that view because Scripture has itself has convinced us of that. I say all that to say that when we read terms like tribulation and great tribulation, don't let yourself immediately jump to any particular perspective. Because, and if you weren't already thinking it, you will be after I say this, because many people read that and they want to distinguish the terms tribulation and great tribulation, uh, divide it between the first half and the second half of a seven-year period tribulation. That's nowhere in Scripture. Okay, that is nowhere in Scripture. Now, could it be possible? Absolutely. There's a lot of things within the scope of Scripture that could be possible, but it's not revealed. It, we don't hold to the first three and a half years of a tribulation period being the tribulation and the second half being a great tribulation because Scripture tells us that. That's what we've applied to it. So don't go there immediately. We may get there. You may get there, but don't start there because that's all we've heard. Now, as we enter chapter 7 of Revelation, you've got to remember where we are. We've... we've We've been given a, a throne room vision of God, the one on the throne, and the Lamb, the, 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 the Lion of Judah who appears to be a Lamb slain, who is worthy to take the scroll and open it. The scroll is sealed with seven seals. Now, understanding, I mean, if we're just taking the imagery, I mean, we don't want to push the, the imagery symbolism too far, but if we take that imagery, the idea is the seals are, uh, are, are what are closing or uh, the keeping one from seeing what is written on the scroll. Uh, and so breaking the seals is necessary for the contents of the scroll to be revealed. And so uh, the idea here is that the contents of the scroll is God's full and final ultimate plan for the consummation of all things. And that in order for this to be fulfilled, that the scroll must be revealed. And in fact, we know it's going to be revealed because we go all the way back to Daniel, we find that same scroll and he's told to seal it up until the time of the end. So God had intended that to be uh, hidden in some respects and then revealed. And we get the joy of the revealing in the book of Revelation. This is God unpacking that which was hidden to uh, old covenant believers to us. And so the scroll is open. I mean, this is why John was so concerned when he didn't think there was anybody able to open the scroll. It would matter because if without the scroll being opened, then the contents of God's vindication, his judgment of the wicked, his vindication of the righteous, his, his, his consummation of all things would not be complete. And so, but the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb slain, is worthy. And so he begins to open the scroll. We saw in chapter 6, as the scrolls were open, scrolls one or seals 1 through 6, the first four being in the imagery of the, of the riders. And those riders going out through the earth. Again, lots of debates on that. Is the white horse Jesus? Is something else? I, I don't, there's differences on those things, and, and don't get lost on that. I don't think the white horse is Jesus, but, um, but these four horses are indicative of, of what's beginning to happen. In my view, uh, during the time of tribulation, which in John's view, I will say, was from the first uh, coming of Christ until the second coming of Christ. Again, I refer back to chapter 1 where John says, I am your brother and fellow partner in the tribulation. So John was writing from that perspective that he was and his audience was, in fact, facing this idea of tribulation. But so the four horsemen taken right out of the books of uh, Ezekiel and Zechariah, the imagery, 
uh, are indicative of the things that would be happening during the time of tribulation. Uh, economic disaster, uh, death, not in totality, but nevertheless expensive, expansive, and at the behest of the Lamb. The Lamb is conducting this, okay? That's the one thing to remember. Jesus, the Lamb is opening the seals, and then there is the, the, uh, um, the four living creatures declaring, come, and then these things happen. So it's at the sovereign direction of God, the one who's sitting upon the throne upon, from which all this is flowing. We can't forget that. We get the image in, in the fifth seal of the souls on the altar, knowing that there was going to be many, many more that would yet to die for the sake of the gospel, not because of, not Christians who suffer in this world in a way that is general amongst all people, but is specific to their testimony to the gospel. Because uh, that's what's in view. And then, of course, the sixth seal reveals to us the language of consummation, the end of all things, the sun turning black, the moon turning with blood, the stars falling from the earth, the, the islands and the mountains being removed from their place, and the sky being rolled back like a scroll, and then the, the, uh, the earth dwellers, as Revelation terms it, those who dwell upon the earth, seeing the one who sits upon the throne and the Lamb and fearing and running and hiding. And that's where 6 ends and sets up what's about to come. Chapter 7 is an interlude. Okay, we, we, Chapter 7 comes in between the 6th seal and the 7th seal. 7th seal is going to be at the beginning of chapter 8 and conclude that round of revelation of judgment, so to speak. But the question that 7 seeks to answer is one that is not just for John's day, it's for every day. And that is, if God is revealing himself in judgment, if he is, if he will, because I would say yes and yes, he is, he has been, he is, and he will fully and finally and ultimately reveal judgment and wrath. But if he is doing that, then as the ones who dwell upon earth ran and hid themselves from uh, in the rocks and the mountains and so cried out, fallen Fallen us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And they said, who can stand? And it's a valid question. And this is a question that is answered in chapter 7. And really, ultimately, the rest of Revelation. Who can stand if God is a righteous God, if he is uh, one who will uh, um, unleash justice upon all creation then who among us will be able to stand? Should we not all run to the mountains and the rocks and cry out, follow us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb? Because as sinners, we're all due punishment, right? We all agree with that. So chapter 7 answers that. And so in the beginning of chapter 7, John says, after this... now. Again, I refer you to the chronology of the book. Now, this could be, I don't think it is, are these events happening in sequence? Is that what John is saying? So after this happened, then this happens. Or is John merely uh, communicating the order in which he's seeing the visions? That would be my position, that there's not the chronology in the events. In fact, I think we're going to find ourselves in a cycle in the book of Revelation. So, because chapter 6, the end of it, I think is the end. I don't think there's more to come after that. I think this is the, the final judgment imagery of that. And now John says, now after I saw that, after that I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Now some people believe that this is a recasting of what you read in the beginning of chapter 6. So the four horsemen 
uh, representative of uh, four entities, four um, uh, servants of God, you could say, doing God's bidding, and that now John is recasting that in a, in a different imagery, which is mixed metaphors, which happens. You know, he'll show thing in one imagery and then use it in another. It's possible. It doesn't matter what you think about that to get the meaning here. But he sees four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. And, and here's what they're doing. They're holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth, the sea, or against any tree. Now, what's the intent there? Now, we know if we keep reading that that, that imagery is not just that, that there's no wind, on earth, the imagery has to do with judgment and harm, because we see that if we, when we keep reading, that the, the point of the wind, the, the unleashing of the winds is an unleashing of judgment upon creation, upon the earth and the sea and against any tree. But then in the midst of that, John says he sees another angel, he doesn't identify the angel, but from the rising of the sun, or so from the east, um, and this angel has the seal of the living God. And he calls with a loud voice to the four angels who are uh, apparently those who have been uh, uh, commissioned to carry out this task. A task that is commissioned by God, that God is sovereign over, that is the judge, act of judgment, uh, that they are the, the, the servants that would be doing that. And so now they're commanded by a loud voice, um, uh, those who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, uh, there helps us understand the point of the blowing of the wind, saying, do not harm the earth or sea or the trees until we've sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, what is John talking about? What is this sealing? Now, in the imagery that many of us are familiar with, especially in, in present generations, we uh, if you've read Left Behind series and those things, how many of you have read Left Behind series? I mean, well, yeah, so, you know, this, you know, if you would be able to see my mark, right? And I'd be able to see yours, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, we think of it that way, but, but that's not what John is envisioning or seeing. In fact, what John is talking about, again, I remind you, comes right out of Scripture. So turn with me to Ezekiel. We've recently gone through Ezekiel. Um, we didn't get to read all of Ezekiel, but turn to Ezekiel chapter 9. As God's people were facing judgment uh, in the rebellion and God had endured with them for years and years and they were approaching the time of, of judgment, Ezekiel prophesies and he sees many visions, right? We saw in the beginning he sees, in fact, you know, um, uh, John, I mean, Ezekiel sees four living creatures and, and he identifies for us the fact that the four living creatures are cherubim. There are angels. So that's probably what John is talking about. While he talks about angels, he talks about four living creatures. Uh, he's expressing a maybe a specific class of angel uh, that God has commissioned for a purpose. Um, Ezekiel helps us understand it. But in the midst of, of these visions, chapter 9, Ezekiel sees this and records what's recorded for us. Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice saying, Bring near the executioners of the city each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen with a riding case at his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the riding case at his waist, 
And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others he said in my hearing, Pass through the city after them and strike. Your eyes shall not spare, and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? So when John sees this vision, it's not something particularly brand new to John. As I would argue, nothing is new in the book of Revelation. Uh, John is seeing things that God has is revealed in other times past. But the picture here for Ezekiel was in the impending judgment that God was going to unleash on his people, on Israel, in that that there were some amongst Israel who were faithful, that not everyone uh, was idolatrous. But there were some that were grieved at the idolatry. And so the imagery there is that while God was going to unleash judgment upon his people, he was going to preserve or protect from his judgment those who were faithful, those who were righteous. And so he tells this man in the linen cloth to go about and mark on their foreheads to mark them out. Now, that imagery of marking the foreheads is, is, is not even new to Ezekiel. Uh, we, we see that in, 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 in other ways. We go back and, and think about Deuteronomy is, uh, 6. I think it's talking about the training up your children. It talks about, you know, the idea the imagery is that they were to write it on their hands and on their foreheads and those kinds of things so that it would be before them in remembrance, the truths of God. We see that imagery, but more remarkably or more notably, we see the, probably the original point of this idea in the Passover in Exodus uh, chapter 12. You know the story of the Passover. We won't go back and read it, but God in his final judgment of the land of Egypt uh, says that he's going to pass, the angel of death is going to pass over, and he's going to kill every firstborn child. But for his people... He tells them, but you go and put a mark on the doorpost. And everyone with that mark on the doorpost, the blood in this case, that the angel of death would pass over them and they would not be affected by God's judgment. And so as it goes in the story, the next day, uh, the entire land was grieving and moaning from the, uh, the massive death that took place, but yet those within Egypt and Goshen particularly, uh, people of God who had marked their homes uh, were delivered from that judgment. So when we get to Revelation chapter 7, this picture is, at least in the broadest sense, a picture of God guaranteeing those who belong to him to not be affected directly or harmed by the judgment that he is pouring out upon earth. Now, I believe this to be true even now, that as Romans 1, 18, which I refer to often, the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's happening today. It's been happening since Paul wrote those words, uh, that, that God has guaranteed that for those who belong to him, that, that he will preserve them and protect them from that, while there will be things Uh, that are unleashed even now. But then most notably, fully and finally, ultimately, God's people will be protected. This is the point of of the passage. Who can stand as God unleashes his wrath and his judgment upon the earth? Well, those who are marked out by God. 
Not those who have a literal stamp on their forehead. But it's the imagery of those who have been sealed or preserved by God. We get other imagery of this in the New Testament. Understand, how does God preserve and seal? Well, we're helped with that in a sense when Ephesians, as Paul writes there in chapter 1. I will not read the entirety of it. I will pick up uh, in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And God has given his spirit as a seal, a preserver, a guarantee for all those who believe. So, John's imagery is a way of expressing that those who have been sealed by God will be able to stand. Now, understand this. From reading Revelation already, the the letters to the church, understand that God is not promising that those who are sealed by him will, will make it through this life unscathed. It is a promise of protection from judgment, not persecution. In fact, just go back a few verses, chapter 6, right? Many more will die because of their testimony of the gospel. So it's not preservation in every sense, but it's protection and preservation uh, from or against that which has the most ability to harm us, to harm us not just temporally, but to harm us eternally. And that is from the judgment of the Holy Spirit. righteous wrath of our God. So he marks them out. Now, who is it that he marks out, according to John? He says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God. Now, throughout the book of Revelation, and, well, some other places, John chooses, he doesn't use maybe some conventional words we might want him to use. He doesn't speak Often, now he has mentioned it, of the Jews. He uses that in some context. He doesn't speak of the Christian. He doesn't talk of believers. He speaks of the servants of God. That's kind of his catch-all term. The servants of God are those who belong to God, the children of God. Now, I don't want to re-preach my sermon this morning. Uh, that is not based on any ethnicity. It is omni-ethnical. I don't, that's not a word, but... Omni-ethical. It's all ethnicities. It's the people of God from all nations. Now, we come to the part that's difficult for us to deal with. And there are all kinds of ways of dealing with this, but we'll be brief on this. John, chapter, verse 4, note, note this. And I heard. That's an important word. I heard the number of the sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then he lists 12,000 from each of the tribes. Now, the dilemma here arises because of the nature of how we want to uh, hold Scripture. We want to believe the Bible or take the Bible literally. We believe in the literal interpretation. I I do believe in the literal interpretation. I just want to be careful how I define it. I believe that uh, taking the Bible literally is, is reading it and understanding it the way that the author intended it to be read or understand, uh, understood. 
John is writing a book that is highly apocalyptic, symbolic. So my default term is, okay, there's going to be a lot of symbolism here, so I'm going to assume symbolism unless it's clear that it should be literal. Most other places in the Bible, outside of poetry, I'm going to assume literal, physical reality, unless it's otherwise clear that it should be taken as an imagery or like this morning was, I believe that Hagar and Sarah are real people. But when Paul clarifies for me now, I'm getting ready to use this as an illustration. So what I'm about to say uh, is being spoken allegorically. Hagar's not really a mountain or a covenant. Sarah is not really a covenant either. But I'm going to use them. And Paul tells us that. So it's very clear in that passage that we're to read that allegorically. So otherwise, I'm not going to read that literally. But without that, then I would start to think that Hagar's a mountain if I read the Bible literally. The problem with that here is that we're in the midst of apocalyptic literature, and there's a struggle here. So, so when John says he hears a number, 144,000, 12,000 from these tribes, should we assume that these are literally going to be 12,000 Jews, ethnic Jews, whether now or in the future, that are going to be marked out? Well, a couple issues with that. Number one, I do not believe, whether now or in the future, that the only people that are going to be sealed by God are going to be Jews. I believe that all that are in Christ will be sealed. So that poses a question for me as I look at this. The other problem that rises for me in taking this to mean that it's going to be just 12,000 Jews from each tribe is look at the list of tribes. There's some anomalies here that, that don't fit with the Old Testament. And the anomalies itself raise some questions. I don't, there are some answers. I won't say great answers, but everybody attempts to answer this. Um, do you see anything wrong with this list? Test time. Read down that list. Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. What's wrong with the list? They're grasping. What is it? What is it? Well, for the sake of time, I'd like to stand here for like the next 20 minutes and just wait. But for the sake of time, number one, that is not the traditional list of the 12 tribes of Israel. You go back to the Old Testament, you can go to um, Joshua, um, is it 9 or 14? I can't remember. The inheritance of the land, you can go through that and kind of see the tribes. Well, first of all, um, you wouldn't expect, though this isn't totally anomalous, that Judah to be listed first. Judah was not the oldest. Reuben would have been listed first in the Old Testament. But Judah, nevertheless, it makes sense that he'd be first here, right? Because the lion of the tribe of Judah exalted you know, so that's, that's not really a big problem. But where's the tribe of Dan? It's not there. Since when have you ever heard of a tribe of Joseph? Right? There was no Joseph. Now, while he was represented in the tribes, it wasn't the tribe of Joseph, was it? Because Jacob, his father, adopted Joseph's sons, who were they? Manasseh and Ephraim. So that's why you read in the Old Testament about the half-tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim, okay? Because they together inherited Joseph's portion. So it's always listed that way. Now, Manasseh's in there, but Ephraim's not. But yet there's still 12 tribes, and then you have, well, how do you do that? How do you get Dan out? 
And of course, we could say, well, Joseph must be standing in the place of Ephraim because Manasseh is listed. So, but how do we still have 12 tribes if Dan's gone? Well, look right in the middle, actually, just below the middle. The tribes were always listed in the Old Testament by um, inheritance, inheritance of the land. But there was one tribe that didn't inherit any land. You know who it is? The Levites. Their inheritance was God. So, so there's a lot of anomalies in here. So if we, we, we look at this and we say, that just, it doesn't, it doesn't add up. I'm not saying it makes it impossible for this to be 12,000 literal, although I have other issues being that we're, we're isolating every other believer in the world from protection from God's judgment, whether now or in the future. But I think in keeping with apocalyptic literature and, and the nature of how John is writing, everything he writes, he's, 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 he's casting for us in the imagery of the Old Testament. That's, that's been seen. We'll see it time and time again, just like we did with the marking of the foreheads. He's pulling out, out of the, the, the scriptures to, to cast these visions to help us give understanding, not necessarily to say, oh, we're back into that place. We're back in Jerusalem with Jerusalem getting ready to fall, and so God's marking out people. But rather, he's using the imagery to convey the truth. And that's what symbolism is. It's a sign to point us to something beyond that. It's not the sign. The sign is not the sign. Or it's not the thing to be grasped onto, but it's pointing to something. Uh, the marking of the, the, the sealing uh, of God's servants on their foreheads. It's not about, you know, getting a stamp on your forehead. It's a sign pointing to something that's, that has a, a truth to it, has substance to it. Uh, and I think that's the same thing. I'm gonna. I want to take this initially, and, and it makes sense because the numbering of it makes perfect sense. Why twelve thousand? Why twelve thousand from twelve tribes? Why why leave Dan out? And why add others and still try to get it to twelve all of a sudden? What's the what's the what shows me that John wanted there to be twelve one way or the other? Why left Dan out? I can't answer. There's arguments about that, and then added Levi. Why did he just his point was he he wanted twelve, and he wanted twelve for a reason. And he wanted 12,000, he's communicating 12,000 for a reason. Because these are numbers in symbolism, uh, symbolic language, and especially apocalyptic literature that have meaning. And the, the meaning is total. All. In fact, if you get to the end of the book, we're going to see a whole lot more of that. And in fact, the, uh, the temple... Uh, uh, the, the temple is measured out. And then we see these same numbers, the 12,000 stadia. Now, if you have a modern language, uh, modern translation, unfortunately, they remove that and try to give you the conversion, but you miss the point when you do that. The 12,000 is important, and it's what 12,000 stadia, uh, high and wide and long. It's equal. It's a square. And so these, this imagery has, to, has everything to do with what John's trying to tell us. In this case, I think the point of 144,000 144, is 12,000, uh, which is... A number of completeness times 12,000. So complete times complete. The, absolutely, and the point here is that whether now or whether future, that when God pours out his judgment, he will guarantee the total preservation of all his people. He will lose none. None of us will be cast out. I think of John 6 at that point. When, when Jesus said he would lose none of what the Father has given him. It's a guarantee. You want to talk about eternal security? You want to talk about the assurance of the believer? This is the imagery here. This is the, the reality of God's guarantee. Now, 
The scene changes. I know we're out of time, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this text. We'll, we'll refer back to it later. But the scene changes to another vision. But this other vision goes with this vision. He says, and after this, I, here's a key word, I looked. And behold, what does John now see? He sees a multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. So John hears first in chapter 7 a number of 144,000 uh, who would be preserved or protected or sealed on the earth. And then he, in the next vision, he looks and he sees a great multitude from every people, tribe, language, nation. Now, I point this out because this is not odd for John. And I'll just refer you back to just one example right now. In chapter 5, we've already seen it. We've already referred to it. John hears about the lion from the tribe of Judah. And then he turns and he sees not a lion, but a lamb. So, did he hear about one thing and then see something else? The answer is no. What he hears and what he sees are both cast in different vision or different uh, uh, metaphors or symbols, but they, they are indicative of the same thing. Now, this, this, is, this happens several times throughout the book of Revelation. John hears, John sees, and what he hears and what he sees is conveying the very same thing. I think that's what we see here. What John hears in the numbering of the totality of those who would be sealed, the 12,000 from every tribe, is the same of what John then looks and sees, and that is a great multitude of every believer that could be numbered from every nation, tribe, people, and and language. Now, the one vision, the first vision, is the vision of God's people um, as they are living out the struggle of life as Christians here on this earth in this kingdom. It's a struggle. It's a battle. There's persecution going on. There's judgment befalling all around us, affecting people. And collateral damage in ways affects even us as believers in the economy and those kinds of things. As God judges through economic disaster, that has effects on us. But God guarantees our spiritual protection because he sealed us. And that has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with God. It's a guarantee. That is the greatest assurance that you can get from God. But then what John sees is that same people, uh, not we didn't turn from Jews to, to Gentiles, but the total people of God, the servants of God, all of them from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and cast in symbolism as the 12,000 times 12. But now he sees them and he gives an imagery of them from every nation, people, tribe, and tongue. But now instead of on the earth, uh, uh, as some would say, militant on the earth, in the midst of the battle, Now they are standing victorious before the throne. So there's a vision here of both the present and the future. And that is of all of God's people who God guarantees would be sealed, protected from his judgment. And then we get the vision of the outcome. That every one of them, with none lost, would be standing before the throne of God in white robes declaring salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So now, we don't have time to to dig into that anymore. We'll pick up there next week. But just think on this. Uh, Again, in light of the things that we know or we, we are in our minds, it's hard for us to take the blinders off sometimes. And by blinders, I don't mean that everybody who disagrees with me is blind. It's not what I'm saying. 
but we walk with the blinders where we, you know, we, we just don't think about some things until that thought is kind of given to us. And all I'm trying to do is give you some, some baskets uh, to, to place some of these ideas, to think them through, so that wherever you land, I mean, the one truth is this. God sealed his people. Take that away, and he's guaranteed. Whether you want to put that somewhere in some future tribulation period that's going to happen for seven years after the rapture again. We've already talked about the, the problem I have with that, that the rapture's not been mentioned up to this point. Uh, we, have to, we have to bring that to it. We have to add that in. Not that I'm against it. <laughs> if God wants to take me out of this world before anything bad happens, hey, have at it. I will not be disappointed. I just... Uh, letting the scripture inform us at this point to revelation there has been no rapture the only thing and we've mentioned it that we could tie that to or people tie it to is is revelation chapter 4 verse 1 john being called up uh, into heaven being told come up here and then he's in heaven but john nowhere represents the church anywhere in revelation Uh, that's something we have to create Uh, john has given us the symbolism for the church and that is the lampstand so i don't want to assume these things hope this is helpful as you think through some of these things again once we get through all this and we Maybe need we start again at that point. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise that is ours. Whether we fully understand this portion of your text or not, whether uh, we've got it all wrong, the one thing we know for certain is not just based on Revelation 7, but based on uh, the entirety of your word from beginning to end that you have promised uh, that you have uh, guaranteed the outcome, that your, your purposes will be accomplished. And not only that, that as we walk in the midst of uh, this world as, as your children, children of promise, uh, that we are guaranteed uh, the outcome. Not because of anything within us that we do or don't do, but because of your promise fulfilled in the only uh, one righteous, uh, Jesus Christ, uh, who lived uh, a glorifying life to you and then gave his life because our lives are not glorifying to you and then giving us his righteousness in exchange for our sinfulness. So I thank you for the guarantee. Thank you for sealing us uh, with your uh, Holy Spirit so that we might be guaranteed the inheritance that you have promised. And I pray that these truths would not just be head knowledge to us, but they would be comfort to us in in difficult times, that we would would be able to use them to comfort others as they struggle through this life, um, maybe even uh, this week. So, Father, uh, go with us now as we depart. Use us for your glory in the places we find ourselves over the next several days. And may um, you be glorified in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.